This is the History Voyager, a podcast about history. There are a zillion podcasts out there. Thank you very, very much for listening to mine. Okay, I have a thought. Really, it's a thought I've had for many, many years at this point. If I had to put a clock on it, I would say about 20 or so years. The thought I've had is that history is not omniscient. And history does not always travel in one direction. In fact, really, it's actually a very simplistic way to look at history to say that it travels in one direction or really any direction at all. When the Spanish flu was going on, America psychologically was very much still in the 19th century. Germany was, which had been recently unified or relatively recently unified, arguably their leadership was actually living in a time further back than that. Very, very much a pre-industrial society. And the thing that I think about, I guess with our modern world, because... In the Spanish Flu podcast, I, I talk all the time and really constantly about how essentially, basically for better or worse, you know, the powers that be at the time of the Spanish Flu essentially were very, very unprepared for the world in which they lived. And... I don't know, the more I keep saying that, the more I say the people who were in charge of things during the time of the Spanish flu were unprepared for the time in which they live, the more I think that's kind of us. That's exactly what, what's going on with us. That we're basically totally unprepared for the world in which we live. At least our leadership is. And, you know... I hear what you're saying, and I hear that you want, you know, that some of you might want this to be a takedown of our current president. And I'm not going to go that way, because I'm not thinking it's necessarily only one political party or one branch of government or one anything that's totally unprepared for the time in which we live. I think we're all unprepared for the time in which we live. I really do. I, I honestly, truly, truly do. Um, what I mean by that is... What I mean by that is we've never before in human history had a way to communicate literally at the speed of light and have it be two-way communication and have it be authentic two-way communication completely without a filter so it's like now we're discovering what people were really like you know what what somebody is really really like without a filter and we're very much used to thinking of the world as though it has a filter on it or at least I am and maybe that's because I'm a digital immigrant now like I said um, earlier in the last podcast, I explained what a digital immigrant was. But I wonder if 
we as a society are simply unprepared to live in the information age. Every age of mankind has, you know, a messy transition period, even and especially from Mesolithic to Neolithic had a, a messy transition period. There's actually a famous, very famous site in Britain of, they think it's where these ancient hunter-gatherers and these ancient farmers essentially encountered each other and, and decided to do battle. And it was a large battle over a large piece of earth. And when you look at it, the hunter-gatherers at that point realized that they were Essentially, they felt like they were fighting for their survival. And that's a fascinating look into a culture that we just don't really have that much of a connection to. But it's also sort of this thought that there's always going to be this conflict between humans, right? There's always going to be this sort of a... Especially when one... Uh, modality leaves and the other one comes in it's it's not like we want to imagine it where it's this nice clean break it's a it's kind of a messy transition and the thing that that you notice when you when you see this is how really these uh, the farmers essentially they were also sort of fighting to the to the tooth and it's really sort of shocking to see the injuries, to see these brutal, brutal injuries. They, they were actually mutilating the bodies after they were dead. It was so weird. But the thing about it, the thing about it that it shows is that these hunter-gatherers, and we think it was the hunter-gatherers that started it, the hunter-gatherers saw the farmers as an existential threat to their way of life, to their, I guess way of life is not the right way to say it, but to their, basically to their modality. It'd be kind of like if the industrial age people and the information age people actually had a, had a battle. Um, it'd be exactly like that. But the thing that that you think about with that is that you look at it from 10,000 feet up so you look at it and you realize that n none of those individual people at that moment probably had any idea which side would win and by side I don't mean in the battle I mean would the farming win or would the hunter-gatherers win nobody really knew and, you know, think about with us, we have this sort of a kind of a, they call it a teleological or telescoping way to look at history where you see the end point and you draw back from the end point as though, well, that had always, was always going to happen. And, you know, when you're dealing in the Christian religion, when you're dealing in, in the Christian religion, it's kind of comforting. It feels comfortable to say there was always a plan and, and the plan was always the way it was. 
that just feels comfortable to people. And that's, I think, a lot of why historians don't really like to talk about counterfactuals. But, I don't know, like, when you really get down to it, a lot of history is basically somebody turned left instead of right. Or, you know, like, if, if Teddy Roosevelt had won the presidency in 1913... Would we have entered World War One? And let's put this back to the Spanish flu. If Teddy Roosevelt had won the presidency in 1913, would the Spanish flu, which was arguably knocking around in Kansas at the time, would it have been as bad? Would it just have gone around... Midwest? I don't know. You know, the world at that time wasn't as connected as it is today. There, of course, there were no interstates. Um, Loring Milner, the doctor, famously traveled in horse and buggy. He was actually infamous for sleeping in said horse and buggy all across his tremendously huge practice which accounted for a, a huge swath of rural Can Kansas. So you have to think sometimes. But another thought is, if the powers that be around then had been slightly less technophobic, essentially to use a modern term, if they had had more of an understanding that this train and this shipping route and this, all this stuff is going to interconnect everything and connect up this disease. But there again, I'm, I'm assuming that they would have been knowledgeable about disease. And, and back then, you couldn't really be a general, you know, somebody who was generally knowledgeable about a lot of things as much because knowledge just wasn't something a lot of people had a lot of access to so in a sense we're better educated now and and we're assuming that you know they were equally as educated or equally as proficient in in different aspects so it's it's hard i really want to judge these people a lot not just for their racism for their lack of understanding of the wider implications of their technology in which their society had come into. But I want to judge them for their lack of understanding about disease, something that seemingly a child knows today. But then I remember that you can't really do that because they were not working with the same information. So that's something that I always think about now. I've been thinking about this back and forth. You know, historical scholarship tends to run in cycles, and sometimes those cycles swing very, very wide. Like, for example, Genghis Khan and the Mongols are credited with a great deal of things that really I don't think Genghis Khan or the Mongols ever thought they were doing at the time and I really don't think a lot of those 
historians believe that either. They're just in search of an edge, basically, against, for lack of a better term, the competition. And modern historians tend to be of a humanist bent. So modern historians tend to think that war is typically a bad thing. And this was not something that historians always thought, to be sure. But historians these days tend to think that war is a bad thing. So, you know, historians tend to think that Woodrow Wilson's intense desire to, to involve us in, in a war in Europe was essentially a horrible idea. But it's worth noting that the elites at the time weren't unanimous in that decision at all. Actually, it's, it's worth noting that quite a few thinkers of the day actually really were spoiling for a fight in Europe simply to be able to prove to other European powers that, you know, we belong with the big boys at the table. And, you know, think about, in my own life, I think about things that that we in this country used to believe, or at least the elites used to believe, and so therefore some of us would parrot it. And, you know, that's kind of gone out of fashion now. Like, like for example, um, look at this push in the 90s to get China to make more stuff because people thought that China was essentially, you know, we can make them into a liberal democracy. And we can do that by incorporating them in the global economy, right? Well, nobody today thinks that. And, and Donald Trump, for better or worse, became president, at least in part, because he convinced people, you know, in enough states that this was a terrible idea. Well, I mean, and another example, you know, I remember a book in college called The World is Flat, Thomas Friedman of the New York Times had this idea that you could basically ship jobs overseas, service jobs, and that other service jobs would come along that would be better, and that these people that were displaced out of the service job that had been shipped overseas would just naturally take the job that was better that just magically appeared. Well, I say that's pejorative on my part because Thomas Freeman never really explained, at least to my satisfaction, how these jobs were supposed to come or, more to the point, the logical leap between somebody who was trained on one job to be able to do another job. Because remember, training takes time out of a person's life. And his book specifically seemed both to cheerlead this thing as well as he says it was to tell people that it was coming. But it felt more like a cheerleading book to me. It wasn't, you know, as though he had created this himself, but he certainly did make a lot of logical leaps, which I don't think basically a normal person would have thought to do. Because, you know, a prize-winning economist isn't exactly a normal person and doesn't exactly have 
a normal job. And really, that's my problem with these types of books, is that they're written by people that have very little relationship or very little connection, I guess is a better word, to the average normal life of average normal Americans. But yet, these books take on this life in the conversation, in the policy conversation, and in the societal conversation, again, largely by people who don't really have any real understanding of what normal reality is for a lot of people. And these books end up shaping the way our society runs. And once a politician on your quote-unquote team extols the virtues of this book to you on the Sunday shows, then you become a parroter of this book, a parroter of this, you know, idea in this book, or so on. And all you're really doing is parroting the politician on your team, so to say. You see that again, perhaps most famously now, and most uncontroversially, in a book called The End of History by a man named Francis Fukuyama. This book today, to talk about it in an adult way, without snickering is almost impossible. It was written during, or I guess right before, this magical time that happened when the Berlin Wall fell and communism was, quote, over, unquote, and 9-11. Looking back, that was sort of a golden age, don't you think? But the reality of the situation is that Francis Fukuyama had said that now that we're come to the end of our war against communism, this Cold War against communism, suddenly now we have this whole new era of time opened up. And he was totally willfully blind to the, the major... I guess, foreign conflict that really was right around the corner, which was 9-11. And I've actually known people who worked in the CIA while, you know, in the days before 9-11. And it's kind of hilarious to them in a very, very dark way. And to me, really, if I'm being honest that you had people, employed people, running around telling our politicians about this. And the politicians believed them. You know, it's, it's almost laughable. Because, I mean, the evidence of, of a 9-11 a type event was actually in the cards. It was on the table. But certain people didn't choose to acknowledge it. Now, why am I bringing this up in a podcast about the Spanish flu? I'm glad you asked that question. The reason I'm bringing this up in a podcast about the Spanish flu is I want to say, as an example, that every era in history has governments that guess wrong or that think wrong. And so we the 
the people that live in the future need to be kinder, I guess, in our assessment of what they were thinking. Because what they were thinking was maybe not the best thought of the day, but it was a popular thought. And we can look back in our own time and notice thoughts that people that are still alive, for God's sake, had that today I'm I wonder if they would say you know silently I guess in the in the dark away from the cameras and the lights and the microphones I wonder if say Bill Clinton would would say that opening up China was a good idea you know and inviting China into the world into the World Trade Organization I wonder if George George H. W. Bush, if he were alive today, what what he would think about that? You know, I really wonder. Or, for example, those people that worked in the CIA prior to 9/11, who just essentially ignored or didn't really understand the data that said that there was going to be an attack on the Twin Towers. I wonder what they think today. The entire reason I'm making this episode of the podcast is essentially that I'm wrestling in my own mind with what, you know, what were they thinking? You know, what was Woodrow Wilson thinking? It's easy for me uh, in, in the modern world to look at Woodrow Wilson and to call him an idiot and a racist, which I'm sure he would have owned up to being a racist at the time. But he certainly would not have owned up to being an idiot. But it's easy for me to look at a world where his theory of the world has been so discredited and to think of him in ways that are unflattering, say. And the other reason I'm making this podcast is essentially because there was a story I read in one of the books in preparation for a Spanish flu episode where it was a retirement and one of the the doctors at at a government installation was retiring and, and they were congratulating him on defeating the Spanish flu decades earlier and he essentially said no 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 I, I didn't defeat the Spanish flu I it just sort of went away and he said I like it trailed off and he had basically a, a flashback and I've read this account in multiple books which leads me to, to believe not only in multiple books but multiple perspectives which leads me to believe that a great many people A saw it and B was shaken by it to a degree and I just thought you know Perhaps I should make an episode of the podcast. Not really in Woodrow Wilson's defense or the Germans' defense, because let me tell you, those Germans then, they, they had this really almost a, an 18th century view of war that, honest to God, was so totally out of touch with the capabilities of modern warfare. It's, it's almost laughable really. But I thought, you know, I, I need to inject a little bit of 
I guess, realism or a little bit of understanding into the podcast so that you, the audience, and me, the presenter, can move forward. All right, and with that, I want to talk about some things going on with the History Voyager. I've got a Facebook group, which I will link below in the description. The music you're about to hear is that of Mr. Andrew Bickery. He's a friend of mine for years and years. And I'd also like to say that I enjoy this podcast a great deal, and it's, it's very humbling for me to do. But I'd also like to say that I've had a, a great deal of, uh, I guess, response in various social media channels. And uh, thank you very much. Anyway, uh, Andrew, play me out.